So you could be as good of a writer as you want, but now you're in a room with Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle. And I won't even, I'll put those names to a side. A guy like Dave Attell. Dave Attell is the greatest living stand-up right now. He's, you know, a New York classic. He's not very famous for in regards of, like, household name, but there's not a better stand-up. And, and spending nights with that guy and the few times he'd let me pick his brain, asking him how he writes, how he performs, how he gets rolling laughs, where it's not just here's a joke, laugh. It's here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke. Get the rolling laughter. Throw three against the wall because if two of the three work, then you still get two longer laughs opposed to just one. And it, 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 you just get better as a performer. But then you have the other thing kicking in, which I was never going to be the best performer I could be at that time because I wasn't meant to be 355 pounds. I never felt comfortable. I'm an active person. This is true. In the last two years, I've lost 175 pounds. Uh, yeah. Thank you. If I knew how many people, though, were going to tell me I look like a completely different person, I would have committed so many crimes. I'm Dan Lamort. I'm a stand-up comedian, newer ultra runner, former college athlete, I'd say. That, that pretty much sums up some of the hats I've worn, and this is the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man, so you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey everyone, it's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? I decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 179 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. Dan Lamort, he's a New York City comedian. He was one of the quickest rising comedians uh, in that New York City area. He has uh, a big album or two on iTunes, and he's also an ultra runner. I mean, it's kind of perfect. You know, if if you're doing stand-up with... Uh, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and, you know, all like the huge names in comedy uh, and you're an ultra runner, I got to pick your brain and hear more about what's going on. So just really excited to have Dan on. Big honor to have him on and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. Quick shout out to the show sponsors. I'm Ethan Wayne, director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation. And I'm Molly, the race director for the John Wayne Grit Series. My father, John Wayne, asked my family and I to use his name to help find a cure for cancer. So we started the Grit Series. It's a series of 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons that take place in the most beautiful and rugged landscapes across the Southwest, including places where John Wayne shot some of his most famous movies. That's right. And all the race proceeds go towards cancer research and prevention programs. We're asking you to join us and bring your courage, strength, and grit to the fight against cancer. For more information on a race near you, visit us at johnwayne.org. That's johnwayne.org. Stay dusty. Also, big thank you to Tannery Outdoors. If you're interested, use uh, the promo code ULTRA10 for 10% off. 
but this is just a great company. You know, it's designed for runners by runners. Uh, the founder is an ultra runner and it's an all natural mineral based product, which in this era of, of sunscreen recalls and everything taking place there, it's just comforting knowing, um, this, this is a, a good, honest company and, um, it, it cares about the ultra running community. It cares about the trails and in the national parks and state parks. I think 1% of their sales goes back into the park systems and they, they definitely support, you know, some really great ultra runners and ultra running podcasts. Thank you to Exoskin. Definitely check them out. T the number four U20 for, I think it's 15% off at this point. It ranges throughout time, but they have new colored toe socks and, you know, I'm a sucker for toe socks. I, I absolutely love those. Definitely throwing on the toe socks. Their calf sleeves are great. They now have underwear and compression tops. And I, I really am a big fan of almost all their products. I use them during all my races. So Dan, thank you for joining me. Um, I'm really excited. I mean, my wife was giddy when she heard that we were going to chat because she really likes your comedy and just really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I mean, not many comics come on here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I haven't narrowed down the field to comics, but uh, your story is pretty unbelievable. Um, you know, guys, guys that go through everything that you've gone through. In addition to topping the the Apple iTunes charts and everything else that you're doing and being on tour, um, it's sweet to talk to you. I'm very excited. I'm excited to be here. You know, it's fun to to be asked to be on a podcast that's not really comedy heavy, you know, to, to be in a part of life now where I could share stuff that's not only, you know, stand-up comedy. It's kind of cool because, like, I, I come from a world of athletics before comedy, so to find myself somewhat entrenched in it again. It's quite exciting. Yeah. I mean, you should be really proud of yourself. I mean, so you weren't joking when you said you were doing athletics in college. Is that correct? Yeah, I was a big time, uh, big time's a stretch of the word. I mean, I, I was a good baseball player, uh, pretty bad baseball player in my childhood, started to get good into high school, got a few scholarships coming out of high school, uh, went to a little college in New Jersey that had a good baseball team. And, uh, Opening day, I mean, this is kind of, in my opinion, this is where life starts for me. Opening day as a true freshman, the first day you could possibly pitch. We're down in South Carolina. I come in in the third inning. By the fifth inning, I'd completely blew out my elbow. I stayed in for another inning after that for six and kind of, I knew immediately. I threw a changeup in the dirt. My elbow snapped out loud. It's a noise you don't really forget. And I called my catcher out, and I said, he was also a freshman. I said, buddy, I just blew out my arm. I said, but let's keep this going because I feel good. And it was a good appearance, and that was the last time I stood on a mound. I had Tommy John surgery, which is reconstructive elbow surgery. It never repaired. Uh, and also, you know, I would found myself where I lost my scholarship because when your arms hurt, they're not going to pay for you anymore. So I dropped out, went to a community college. In that process of, of missing baseball, uh, while I was rehabbing for Tommy John, I'd started to do stand-up. And that's just one thing led to another. You know, when I started to realize my arm wasn't coming back pretty strong, I was already in the city at night doing stand-up. I'm in community college in Jersey in the afternoon, stand-up in the city at night. 
school became less appealing, baseball became less appealing, and ultimately I, I, I left that school and baseball altogether. I mean, I've I've heard the click noise, except as my hip flexor. It's like it, during a game to hear your body break with your own ears is never uh, never a good thing. Um, it, I'm trying to remember. Was it Angels in the outfield? What was it where the guy was in the sling and his arm just came back? I think it's Rookie of the Year, right? Where sure, yeah, yeah, his arm and it comes back. Yeah, that was no such thing for me. That did not happen. Yeah, there was a lot that goes on. Like hindsight, twenty twenty. When I think back to the day, I, I kind of forgot that a lot of times the older guys in the team will haze you, uh, and they'll just be rude to you and mean to you for kind of no good reason. And that game, I was on the infield before the game, helping out with the infield outfield, the warmups. One of the seniors on the team, without me looking, fired a line drive at me to hit me on purpose. The ball hit me square in the elbow. I didn't think anything about it, and I go into pitch later that game, and then my elbow blows out completely. Now that I know more about the body and whatnot, I, I probably know that my arm swelled up to a point it never swelled before, and I decided to pitch at full speed with the swollen arm, and the ligaments just busted because of those two. So are you mad at that guy? Are you mad at him? Are you ha like, Is it a, a blessing in disguise because you wouldn't have pursued comedy full-time or maybe you would have I don't know no I'm not mad there's no anger it's like you said I mean I'm a very uh whether ultra running is a big piece of it but there's been a, I'm 26 years old this past year has been a pretty large unfolding year of my life or different things coming in and out and I'm a, I meditate a lot very in touch with the spirit and the body and this and that and for me I mean blowing out my arm that wasn't by chance that happened because it had to have happened that you know it happened to me it happened for me, not to me, is kind of how I try to live about. And that was just life's first example of me being on the wrong path. But also the power of the spoken word, because, right, I wasn't that happy at this college. I had found a great group of teammates, but the school itself, I was unhappy. I was vocalizing that entire preseason, how I was going to leave the school after that year. I had met with uh, two military recruiters, one for the Marines and one for the Army to do special ops where I was just going to go into the military, leave college, be done with baseball. And then I put all this out there, and then the first game, you know, it kind of gets blown out. So whether it's a mix of life telling me this is the direction I needed to go or me speaking it into existence at the time because I was pretty unhappy with where I was, and then that was just step one to kick me in the ass, and that got me into comedy, and that's a road that sees me go from being a college athlete to you know, a 355-pound comedian in the span of three years. So tell me tell me about that path. I mean, was it was it uh, drugs and alcohol-induced, or was it just, I, I mean, I'm the same way. That's how I stress, I stress eat like crazy still a little bit. But it was mostly like, right, when you, my weight was such a focus my whole childhood. I was always very heavy. I grew up very heavy, and then high school, I started to develop this work ethic where my, my high school got this brand new gym. They built this state-of-the-art weight room, and I developed this mentality where every morning I was up at 4.30 a.m., I was showered, I'd go to the gym, I'd work out, shower a second time, and then start school, and that became this every day. So I got in shape, lost the weight, became this workout dude, and then you go to college. You're like the cleanest dude in Jersey, right? Yeah, at that point, I was. Three showers a day, at least. Uh, you got to contribute to making the place smell better. 
And then, like, you go from that to college athletics, which is that's two-a-day practices, that's study halls. That, so, like, I, I had all of this free time, so comedy was such an easy transition. And then you, you work in the fact that you don't have a coach hanging over you. You're not going to work out. That, that two-a-day training sessions, you're not getting up at six to train when you don't have a coach hounding you to do it because you were out late night doing stand-up comedy till two in the morning. So working out goes out the window. And then I also had the built-in excuse that my elbow was blown out and I had a surgery that never quite healed. So I told myself, I can't work out. I can't do push-ups. I can't lift weights. So you just start telling yourself you can't do it. You start to actually believe that. And then I had some success early in comedy, but by around the third year, I, I was in this club that's kind of considered the best club in the city called the Comedy Cellar. I'd worked, I was one of the youngest and the fastest to ever work there, and my crack showed. I didn't deserve to be in the club that young, but I got the chance and I ran with it. And after a year, they stopped using me, and that was when life kind of got put into perspective for me again, because I was like, I put all my, my eggs in this comedy basket where comedy is the thing that makes me happy. So much so that I didn't care I was 350 plus pounds because comedy was making me happy. But now if comedy goes away, what am I? I'm a 23-year-old stuck in a 355-pound body. I need to learn my own happiness outside of comedy because you can't rely on such a, a fluctuating industry to maintain like feeling good. So that was, I was in a hospital bed. I was 350 pounds. A doctor told me I had a fatty liver because he pushed down on my stomach and I was in so much pain that he could actually feel the liver through it and... I was having all of these different feelings going on in my head that I just made the choice. All right, let's let's start with the change. And I gave up gluten, and that was step one. I stopped eating gluten, and 50 pounds later, I stalemated because I was just doing a diet. And I was like, well, let's mix up some other stuff. And I was in Los Angeles for a month for work. I, I was sub subletting an apartment there, and they had a little gym. And I just started becoming a beast in that little gym and started training again and that was what birthed like the desire to become an athlete again. It all started with, you know, all these things have to go wrong for you to steer right, I think. That, that's how I feel. Like there was a lot that had to come crashing down, but it had to have happened. So many people tried to interfere along the way. Parents, cousins, relatives, friends. And as nice as that is and how much I did hear their concern at points, you need to hit the ground hard on your own and really come crashing down, I think. Because you need to make the decision to change. And that's what it took for me. I, things really seemed to come crashing down. I didn't have the happiness in comedy. I, I didn't have the health I once had. I wasn't happy looking in the mirror. And it, it just all had to come to this conclusion of like, all right, what am I doing? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I've lost 50 pounds for my personal journey. But you have to have that catalyst. Like, without it. You hear people telling you, like, I heard the doctor telling me my blood pressure was out of control, like, everything was going wrong, and I, too, gave up gluten eventually. Um, but until you believe it yourself, it's it's like, oh, okay, like, I'll get to that. Like, I'm good. Like, you just don't really see yourself clearly. Yeah, and then it just takes a lot of things going wrong to realize, like, okay, maybe I do need to make some changes. Because, like, at the end of the day, what I was considering doing a weight loss surgery called Obalon, where you swallow balloons and they inflate them in your stomach. And they, they and I'm, just, I'm starting, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, what the hell am I doing swallowing balloons? I'm like, I'm 23 years old. This doesn't sound like something I need to do. I was like, you were a college athlete not that long ago. You try to write the. I was like, you could give yourself the bailout option. 
But then I'll never forget, I was at my cousin's house, and they have, you know, one of those things where it's like your cousin's uncle, but he's not your uncle. He was always called Uncle Chub Chub, this, this fat, miserable dude. And uh, he got weight loss surgery, you know, lost all the weight. He got a lap band, whatever it is, gastric bypass, loses all the weight. Next thing you know, this dude starts making fun of me for being fat. He's doing fat jokes up the ass. And I'm like, whoa, 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 man. That doctor wrote those jokes for you. You didn't lose this way. You can't joke about this. Like, this isn't, you can't call me fat if you took the easy way out. And easy way out, I don't want to be an asshole and say that. But in this case, him making fun of me, that was the, that ignited something where I was like, I want to make fun of him, but the real way. I want to lose it through running and this and that so I could come make fun of him at the end of the day. And this isn't a comedy podcast. But expectations are high. Uh, every everyone listening expects to chuckle once. Um, take me to the comedy cellar. Like, what type of names were you seeing there? You're the youngest guy there. That's probably not breeding like a, a very healthy lifestyle. Just if anything, due to the nocturnal nature of a lot of that. Um, and then tell me, like, what's going through your head when you get sort of dropped from that scene? Yeah, so it, it, it's, it all happens so fast. We're like, because in comedy, there's certain ways to get stage time, which is like, there's something called barking. Barking means you stand in front of a venue. You know, this is, think New York City, where there's a lot of foot traffic, and you're in front of a bar that has a free comedy show. You stand in front of that bar, and as people walk by, you say, hey, you guys want to see a comedy show? And if you get a certain amount of people in, you get stage time. That's one of the ways. And there's also selling tickets, where you're one of the guys who stands in Times Square, and you work for a comedy club and you sell tickets. And if you sell it, you mean you get money for tickets, but then they'll also give you stage time. So I very quickly was in that scene. I wasn't a big fan of open mics because I really cherished this real audience. And the only way to get that was through this groundwork. So I lived down the shore in Jersey. I would drive to Staten Island. I had a deal with the ferry guy. He let me keep my car there for a few days for $7. I'd take the ferry in. I'd sell tickets from 7 o'clock in the morning to about 6 o'clock at night. For that club that I sold tickets for, I'd get one spot. I'd go to that club, do the spot. It's called the check spot, where they put you up when they drop the checks. So, like, they'll put the checks down in the middle of the show. They don't want to give that to one of the professional comics, so they give it to a young guy. And they're like, hey, look, you're on the show, but in reality, you're performing uh, for, you know, people who are paying a bill. Yeah, they're not fully attuned to the show exactly so i would run i'd go do my check spot then i'd go to a bar in the village and i would bark until about 11 o'clock at night so i would do the sound tickets bark my dad has a deli in uh new york city so i would sleep in the storage room there's a washer and drying machine i'd put a blanket out and i'd sleep on the washer and drying machine and i'd wake up and and i'd do it again and i went from this life of hustling in this grungy scene to i did a comedy festival and i worked with one of the old school seller guys and I won't use his name because recommendations are very uh, pure in the comedy seller world. No one likes to let people know who they recommended. And I work with this guy, and I'm 20 or 21, and he, he likes my material. And something happened in my life where I went through this weird, I don't know what it was, you know, so I'm at my heaviest. Life is what I, I get into two bad car accidents in the span of two months, like literally two, three-month span, total two cars, break bones, tear muscles, head injury. And I just felt like this weird, like, who the hell cares anymore kind of energy. So I messaged him up after we worked together. And I said, listen, man, I know I'm young and I'm new, but I really want to work the seller. Do you think you'd give me a recommendation? And 
he answered back yes. And by the end of that week, I had an audition at the cellar. You usually need three people to recommend you. I had one. I was 20, 21 years old, been doing comedy for two years. And it was this weird thing where I went from being the guy down the street. I barked for a venue, literally a two-minute walk down the street. So I'm one of the guys. I'm like the single-A guy who's now in the major leagues. And it was overwhelming. I didn't know how to handle it. And it, it messed me up a lot. And not even in terms of drugs or alcohol. It wasn't that. It was, you know, you go from me in this, un- I, I didn't do open mic. So I'm essentially an unknown comic because I'm selling tickets, I'm barking, but I'm working my ass off. But I'm young, I'm new. So you go from me in this guy that nobody knows. And now you're the youngest comic and the fastest to ever get past the seller. Everybody knows you now. And comedy's a jaded business for a lot of these guys. They're older dudes, older ladies. And... Now, next thing you know, I'm walking into a room where people not only know me, but they have these preconceived notions because they're not at the cellar. They're not in a certain club, and I am. So I got this hate from people that I had never met before, people who were going to one day be people I worked with. And I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't, you know, now I could separate the feelings that, you know, what people project onto me is, is how they're feeling insecure and not me. But when you're 21, you don't know that. You don't have years of, of, life experience i I sort of picture like an m&m like an overweight m&m eight mile thrown up before yeah so just action bronson an overweight (laughs) m&m just a fat white rapper (laughs) that's another thing that pisses me off everyone used to say i look like action bronson and then i lost all the weight and then he just lost 200 pounds so it's like what are you doing man are you following me (laughs) maybe you inspired him you never know but yes that's kind of what it was this weird thing where i i just mentally i wasn't prepared for what the seller was going to bring and i have a good relationship with them now there's talks to work there again this and that i have a great relationship with a lot of the clubs in the city there's a club called the stand that's my home club i'm there every week multiple days a week so i'm as content as i've ever been in comedy but it was another one of these things right where i'm not sure if the seller doesn't stop using me i'm not sure if i become an ultra runner So here's this thing about life again, where life tore my arm. Life also probably took the seller from me because it said, hey, man, you're getting a little too comfortable. Look where your health is at. Look at some of these other things. You need happiness elsewhere in life. And then, you know, finding running and, and this path of health that's also opened and unfolded to so many other things. It's just another thing now where I have nothing but love for not working the seller. I mean, that falling out of that club set forth the weight loss, the running. I mean... And who I am on stage now as a comic, when I watch clips from the cellar, I'm like, God damn, how didn't they kick me out of the club sooner? I was, you have no perspective at 21. You're a fat 21 year old. No, I mean, sure, life kicked me in the ass a little bit with college athletics, but I didn't have like a ton to like just experience with these audiences. I didn't, I can connect now in such a more honest way. And I finally feel like I'm doing stand up as myself because I'm not in this fat character. So like I, I think that did have to happen, but God, am I happy it happened. I mean, there are nights where I'm 21 years old sitting at the, you know, because the comedy cellar has the table, which that's what it's famous for. They, they have the cellar is a downstairs comedy club. Upstairs is the olive tree, which is a, a restaurant. And in the back of the restaurant is the table. And that is legendary. That's you're only allowed to sit there. If you're a comedian who's passed at the comedy cellar, doesn't matter if you're a famous comedian. If you don't work the cellar, you can't sit at that table. I mean, this table is so sacred that they did renovations in the cellar and they had to move the kitchen. So with the movement of the kitchen, 
the table had to move to the left about six inches. They do that. Chris Rock walks into the club one day. He says, what the hell did you guys do to the table? You messed it up. This ruins it everything. This table is, you ruined it. And he yells at them. He says, you guys ruined it. The seller cared so much that they reconstructed and moved the table back. Redid, knocked down the wall again. And to move the table back, whatever it was, six inches. That's like a classic comedy seller story. But yeah, I mean, there are nights where, you know, you go from selling tickets at a dingy bar and now you're eating dinner with Louis C.K. and Chris Rock. And, you know, I, I got to watch Dave Chappelle many nights. I got to watch Amy Schumer, you know, go up on a star-studded lineup where it was like Chappelle, Rock, Aziz, Schumer. Schumer finishes her set and goes, guys, I have one more guest. The crowd goes nuts. She goes, don't go crazy. It's not like it's Madonna or anything. And then she goes, ladies and gentlemen, Madonna. And then Madonna just goes on stage and does stand-up comedy. I mean, that's what that place was. I mean, and it was so overwhelming. I, I ended up at a Dave Chappelle after party one point uh, from the cellar to a party at this club in the city called The Box, which is very high-end. And we'll put burlesque, and I'll put air quotes around it. And the air quotes mean it's probably more of a sex club than anything. But, and then, you know, you just find yourself in these situations where you're rubbing shoulders with these people. But deep down, I didn't feel ready at all. I still felt like an imposter, kind of. And then it all did come crashing. Crashing down is a strong word. But, you know, the, uh, when a club feels that you're not ready, they'll slowly work you out. So you go from 12 shows a, a week to 10 to 9. Next thing you know, you're doing every other week. And then they, they go out completely. How is your material changing? Like as you're seeing more and more success, you're hanging out with the biggest names in comedy um, and just in entertainment in general. Is your is your writing changing? Are you getting lazy as a writer because you're not waking up at seven? You're not sleeping at your dad's, um, you know, what is it? Restaurant. Um Delhi, uh, you're not as hungry <laughs> for word to use there, but you're not, you're not, you're kind of taking it for granted and your writing doesn't have that inspiration or even desperation that it had before. Not at all, because I mean, look at when you, when you think of mindfulness and enlightened people, I mean, what, what do they say? The way to enlightenment is to spend time with enlightened people. You, you can only learn from people who have this knowledge. So you could be as good of a writer as you want, but now you're in a room with Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle. And I won't even, I'll put those names to a side. A guy like Dave Attell. Dave Attell is the greatest living stand-up right now. He's, you know, a New York classic. He's not very famous for in regards of, like, household name, but there's not a better stand-up. And, and spending nights with that guy, and the few times he'd let me pick his brain, asking him how he writes, how he performs, how he gets rolling laughs, where it's not just here's a joke, laugh, it's here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke, get the rolling laughter, throw three against the wall, because if two of the three work, then you still get two longer laughs opposed to just one. And it, 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 you just get better as a performer. But then you have the other thing kicking in, which I was never going to be the best performer I could be at that time, because I wasn't meant to be 355 pounds. I never felt comfortable who I was. And, and the best performers are the ones who are completely and unequivocally themselves on stage. When you bring a product to the audience that is just honest and you, I mean, if you talk to me after a show, you're getting the same person that's on stage. It's identical. And I wanted to get to that place. And the weight loss kind of is what got me there. This is the first time ever in my career where I actually feel like Dan Lamort is on stage. This is me 
up there. I was performing as a character. I was like, you know, a Rob Schneider character in an Adam Sandler movie. That wasn't me. That was just a different fucking variation of me. Now this is it. And it's incredible. And to have other happiness in your life outside of comedy, like, don't get me wrong, there are some times where I'll bang out like a long run and I'll be like, how the hell am I going to be funny after this? I don't feel as funny sometimes because fat did lead to funny. That was a defense mechanism. But I know how to write comedy. I know what is funny. I know how to look at things a bit differently. I, I do think that my skill in comedy doesn't, it doesn't fully come from just the writing. You know, I am someone who, it's stories for another day, but I, I, I am on the autism spectrum. So that is a way for me that I, I feel like I'm able to take things in in just a, a unique way. And now that I'm so much in line with who I am, it's like the material is just coming out more honestly. Now that's beautiful. I mean, it's just a beautiful way to live life too, regardless of the level of success you have. Just being comfortable with who you are, every flaw, all your strengths, like it's just, it's a nice, and I, again, I feel like I've gone through a very similar path where I'm finally accepting myself for who I am. And it truly leads to just being satisfied with some of the smallest things in life that, yeah, you normally overlook. What was your catalyst? What, how did you hear about running? I know you were a baseball player. You're probably, if you're in trouble, you're doing laps or something to that effect as punishment. When did running um, begin to take a hold in your life and, and walk me through, how the hell did you hear about ultra running? That's an even bigger outlier. <laughs> I always had good endurance, and that was something that I remembered. I remembered I was a pitcher, right? And when you become a pitcher in baseball, especially when you get around high school, if you're a better pitcher than a hitter, they'll usually not let you hit anymore because, you know, it poses for injury, blah, blah, blah. I loved hitting. And there would be practices where I'd try to sneak BP in before my coach got down because I was a good, I was a damn good BP hitter. I could hit, I mean, you threw me 10 pitches, I could hit 10 home runs, but you threw a curveball at me in a game, I'd panic. So I was like a real cage hitter, but he would ask me, he'd come down to the field, he'd say, how many home runs are you hit in batting practice? I'd say six. He said, all right, go down to the track and give me six miles because he'd punish me for taking batting practice. But I always knew it was worth it because I could go long. And then I remembered in college, we threw a huge party in our dorm room. The cops came, kids got in trouble, you know, everyone got written up and our coach punished us. And I was not the fastest or most athletic on that team, but I was able to stay in the front with the captains. I was a freshman with those seniors who, you know, all of them went on to become professional baseball players. I was able to stay in the front with them the entire run and not get tired. And those memories always stuck in my head because there was some... There was something peaceful I always found about running, but I also hated it because I was never in that great of shape. So how running comes back into my life is that I think, you know, I, I had the gym in L.A. And when I got back from Los Angeles to my house in New Jersey, I did not have a gym. And I was still heavy enough. I was around 295, 300 pounds to where... I didn't want to go back to a weight room. I knew the beast that I once was in a weight room in college when you tell yourself, ah, you're a young, strong mother, you could do all this shit. I don't want to go back to that because I, I felt so uncomfortable at, at what I still was and I'm athletic that I had this old pair of running shoes, these old Asics that I never used. There was going to be an attempt where I was going to run and lose weight like a year and a half before and I tossed those on and I went around the block and I absolutely hated it. And uh, 
I had remembered that when I was in LA to go on a hike, me and my buddy got stoned because I really didn't want to go on a hike with him. And it made me love the hike so much. And when I started working out in Los Angeles and losing that weight, I was doing all of the workout stone. So I was like, well, let me just smoke a joint and go for a run. And I mean, I, I literally had no problem with the run. It was like I was a different guy. It was my body felt better and it felt a little more fun to me. So that started to become this thing where I would just smoke a little bit, go for a run. Never long distances, you know, three, four miles, this and that. At this same time that this is going on, I have people in my life tell me about a guy named David Goggins. Because I've lost some weight now at this point with the dieting and the lifting. And I'm very stubborn. So I'm like, it's got to come into my path. I have to, it's got to come to me for me to really want it to happen. And I was on my way to a run on the boardwalk. I was supposed to do four miles. I'd never done more. And I, a Goggins interview came on my phone. So I listened to it. And he had this thing, this 40% rule that when you're at your wits end, like when you feel like you're done, you've actually only used 40% of your energy. So I heard that and I was like, yeah, whatever, this guy's a Navy SEAL. He had no, it's, it's whatever. So I go to run on the boardwalk and it's close to the water. I drop my water and it rolls onto the beach and goes away. And it's a winter, it's cold. Never run more than four miles in my head. I'm like, well, I should just quit this run. I don't have a water now. I'm, I'm good to quit. And I said, well, let's, let's see what Goggins was about. And I just ran eight miles straight. And I realized I never, that was double the most I'd ever run. Then I was like, oh my God, my car is eight miles down the other side of the boardwalk. So I end up to the half marathon distance going back. And I have three miles left at this point. I'm sweating, but the sweat is frozen. My nipples are bleeding because I've never run this long. I'm a complete mess. My legs are done. But in my head, I'm like, wow, Goggins was up to something. And then I see a woman putting her dog in the car. And I'm like, miss, I have three miles left on this boardwalk. I've never run this far in my life. Can you please just give me a, a drive to the end of the boardwalk? Because I don't think I'm going to make it. And she just looked at me and said, you are out of your mind, son. And <laughs> got in her car and drove away. And I had to walk those last three. But that was the start for me of, whoa, there's something here. And then very quickly from Goggins, I found Courtney DeWalter. And the autistic mind, I mean, I, I become obsessed immediately. So then I just became obsessed with ultra running, ultra running documentaries, anything Billy Yang made, uh, or the Transcendent Run documentary, anything. And, and ultras specifically drew me in because every ultra documentary I'd, I'd watch at the end of these races, whether it was the elites, the front of the pack or the middle of the pack, there was this one about UTMB, uh, and it's, it's about these guys. Like, I think they're British dudes. They're like middle of the pack guys. And even just that, every one of these documentaries, when these people hit the finish line, they were reduced to tears, but happy tears, as if they had just gone through something that only they know and that they, so much happiness in those tears. And I, the second I saw people crying like that, I knew I needed to hit a finish line of these races because I wanted that feeling. That's what I was in search of, was whatever that was. And... You know, I, I think as a lot of ultra runners will will attest to, you yourself would know, is that that feeling is very real. That that crossing the finish line, that flooded with tears. My first ultra, you know, I cried my eyes out when I hit the finish line. And uh, it's, ultra to me is just, I'm fascinated with it. I can't get enough of it right now. I'm obsessed with it. I I think every day about where I could possibly take this, even as I deal with a ton of injuries and my foot probably is going to, give out on me sooner than later. It's just, it's such a fun 
Like, it's so new, you know, there's something so appealing to the newness of it and just these people pushing themselves further than they ever thought possible. When I was 350 pounds, I told my parents, I said, give up on me. I'm never going to be skinny again. Just accept it. So what I am now, I, I never thought this was possible. So I, I, that's what ultra running is to me. I'm like, wow, what else is in here? What else could I keep doing? You got to find a race that's long enough that you don't have the energy to cry at the end. <laughs> Well, you know, I got I got my longest one coming up in November, my first attempt at a 50-plus miler. So it's only my second race. I don't know why I talk like I've done. I've only done one. Well, tell me about that one. I mean, which which one did you pick, and what was the distance? I assume it was 50K. And... My first race that I had signed up for was this race called the Batona Trail Race, which was a 33-miler through the Batona Trail, which is in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Uh, that one was ultimately canceled for covid so in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to put on an event where I run for a few charities because I just want to get the mileage down. But I went full crazy. I was like, I'll do 50 miles around a track because I love doing distances on track. I don't mind going in circles. I could zone out. I play fun games in, in my head. I kind of really enjoy it. And uh, Are you a visual thinker, not to interrupt you? Yes, visual thinker. But also I like to play things out just completely in my head. So I could zone out pretty well in those runs. That's a It's a big attribute for running you can meditate you have yeah well yeah i meditate a lot while i run i think meditating outside of running kind of helps dip into the meditative state while running and different mantras and, and whatnot can get me where i need to go so tell me about your running around yeah so i was going to do this 50 mile i was going to do 50 miles around a track which would ultimately be 200 loops i was going to run for a few charities the last prisoner project this is a charity i, I like a lot and uh i ended up taking a fall on a really tough trail in New Jersey, uh, in Red Bank, New Jersey, called uh, Hartshorn Park. It's a gnarly trail. I mean, you'll get over a thousand feet of elevation every, you know, five miles or whatever, which is really good for out here. And uh, I took a bad fall, went to the doctor, got started to develop this gnarly post-tib tendonitis on the inside of my foot. Ended up keeping me out for two months, but in the last week of that month being out. I signed up for a race called the Naked Bavarian, which was a 41-mile race in Pennsylvania with 5,000 feet of elevation gain. Uh, and because uh, I thought I could handle that because I was banging out a few thousand in like, you know, we got a mountain here that gives you a few thousand in four miles. So I was like, oh, I could do this. And I essentially only had about two or three months of training coming out of that injury to get ready for the ultra. It was, it was... I would say it would be an experience that a lot of other runners wouldn't be able to identify with because I agreed to let a documentary crew come in from L.A. and make a documentary about my story in the race. So I'm getting ready to run my first ultra, and then the seven days leading up and the race itself, I have cameras on me almost every waking minute of the day. I have a newfound respect for the Kardashians by a lot. It's not easy. I mean, the at one point, the dude was like, do you mind? Kardashians don't have to perform, per se. No, but just to have the camera on you. I mean, you feel like you have to perform. There's one point he has the camera on me. Athletic feet, though. No, they don't have to run. They don't have to run. I mean, that's a whole other animal, like, trying to... Because, you know, you walk a lot in your first ultra. I wasn't running all 42 of those miles. So when that cameraman catches up to you and you're walking, you get real pissed at him. You're like, what are you doing? Don't get me walking on tape. But also just having a camera on you all week long. I mean, you kind of... It's like holding a mirror up to yourself. It was really weird to have that in the week of getting prepared for the race. 
But hindsight 2020, the fact that I'm going to get to relive that experience in the race day all over again when this documentary comes out, I'm so excited uh, to, to be a part of that. But the race itself was, it was everything I could have wanted it to be and then more. It was really hard at points. I wanted to quit uh, pretty early on because I, I did the rookie mistake of not, I didn't know which direction the runners were taking off in. And my anxiety was going crazy before. So I'm in and out of the bathroom. Then I hop on a long line for the bathroom. And I realize I only have two minutes of the race starts. I'm not going to have time to go to the bathroom. So I go over to the starting line. A minute before the race starts, the race announcer says, Hey, you know, we got this comedian running with us, Dan Lamort. He's lost 185 pounds. Raise your hand. We're so happy and excited to have him here. And I raise my hand. I'm like, oh, wow. While he does that, he shoots off the gun. I realize I'm standing in the wrong spot. I'm standing in the front of the pack, but I'm nervous, so I just take off. And I took, I stayed with the front of the pack for, you know, probably only three miles, but it was enough to completely torch my legs in the beginning. I set out wanting to do an 11 to 11.30 pace for the 42 miles. And coming into that first aid station, I was pacing at about eight-minute miles on the trail. And I was like, this is not what I wanted to do. And that ultimately ended up blowing up my calves pretty early into the race. I had never blown up my calves before where they had hurt. And this was the first time I'd ever had calf pain. And that came at about nine miles in. And I started to tell myself it was a 20 mile loop. And then you do that twice. And I told myself when I get to the 20 mile mark, I'll quit. That's a respectable amount. That's fine. My, my family will understand. And then something just happened when I got to the halfway point where the pain kind of went away. And then you just, after once you hit the halfway point of a race, then it becomes real that every step forward is one step closer to the finish line sure every step of a race is like that but it's a lot easier to believe it when you're halfway through on those loop courses those, those are very difficult i was so delirious that i did, it didn't even look like the same course to me the second time around it, none of it looked familiar i thought i was lost at points because it all looked different to me i mean is it more nerve-wracking having some giant name in a comedy show like back when you're at the cellar introduce you or whatever to get on go on and do your show or is it more nerve-wracking to start an ultra marathon oh, start an ultra marathon because i mean there's never been a time where i've stepped on stage and been like oh boy i gotta be up here for nine hours <laughs> i've never had to map out taking a shit while on stage you know <laughs> in ultra running that's quite prominent I mean, is there a world record for like longest stand up? Because that that could be an interesting combo to like use your endurance and your meditation techniques, but you're naturally gifted at humor. Chappelle and Chappelle and Dane Cook used to go back and forth over who could do the longer set. Ultimately Chappelle took I mean, there's been reports, rumors that Chappelle has gone as long as like five hour sets. Do you think you have a five-hour in you? No, I would have no interest. The amount of material would just be crazy. My friend, I've done enough mushrooms in my life to not have the ego to talk for five hours anymore. <laughs> I do not have what it takes. I'd bow out after an hour because I'd feel bad for the crowd. I struggle talking to audiences now as a comic, kind of. How's your material changed since becoming an ultra runner? Have, have more of your jokes tilted towards... 
maybe more profound outlooks and and more like I don't know endurance related jokes or there's some running jokes that work their way in. I mean scenarios that I've found myself in because like I like I said I run stoned and uh, a lot of times I, I also have my nipples chafed, so I got these nice little circle nipple pasties that are the same color as my skin. And I'll put those on and you know, I'll be stoned. So I'll take my shirt off by the end of a run and then I'll go into a store in the city to buy a drink. And everyone will be looking at me like I'm crazy. And then I'll realize because they think I have no nipples because of these pasties. So, you know, enough of these stories that they, they happen to me and these things that I experience running, you know, whether it's not expecting to run into a horse, then you run into a horse on a train and how do you on a trail and how do you handle that? And it's it's worked its way in. Um I don't know how it's, I mean, I would say it's, it's hard to say how it's changed. I mean, it's become more personal, I guess, because when you're running, you have a lot of time to sit with your thoughts and your material and really get to know yourself. But it's also become more about what I want to do, because when you're out running for all these, excuse me, all these hours, you really have a lot of time to think about what it is that you truly want to do. So now the the material I'm doing, the bits that I'm doing, it's really stuff that that has been thought about for a lot of hours. I was going to ask you, do you write do you write some while you're out there on the trail like kind of deep meditative like you start connecting the dots on that deli joke that just hadn't been connected before. What, you know, some kind of joke. Yeah, it's funny you say that because like it there will never be like the clear intention. Like I'm going to go out on this run with the intention of writing. But like even today I was, I I did a 10 mile run before we recorded this and I was probably like six miles in. Like I just visually saw like two jokes of mine that have existed in the past, but never fully crushed. I saw where they could actually both come together as one joke and work their way back into my act now and that will happen where it's like, it doesn't happen every run, but there will be some runs or whether an old premise or something new, an old story pops into my head or even an idea that if I'm two miles into a run, right, and this joke pops into my head and I'm like, that's pretty funny. I won't write it down because I know if I get to the end of that run, it was a really funny joke if I still remember it, which is like the old Mitch Hedberg thing, which is like, you know, if I... I, I know a joke's funny if I kind of remember to write it. Uh, the gist of it is kind of like that, but that's the same of me. Like if I think of a joke in the beginning of my run and it's still there at the end, I'm 100% doing that on stage that night. That's that's really interesting. And running's maybe more present with my audiences. That should be noted as well. I mean, if like, you know how when you do a 10 mile run, it, there's not much anger that comes out on the other side of that. So you start your day with 10 miles you're in a good headspace. So at night when one of your crowds is, you know, a real bag of trash and they're heckling or drunk or just disrespectful, you're not so quick to lash out at them. You're actually quicker to understand them and be present in the moment because ultra running is all about being present and correcting the problems that present themselves in the course of this race. Stand up is like that as well. You have to be present and then correct these problems in the crowd as they present themselves. So there is such a fine line. You're working on your breath and you're like dynamically altering your material and, and trying to handle stuff. That That is ultra running. That's crazy. Exactly. Uh, athletics and art uh, do overlap quite a bit. I mean, it's like an art form of the body. You know, just the there's so many lessons from baseball, from comedy, from ultra running that seamlessly tie together in life and athletics and performing. Just totally random here. Have, did you meet Mitch at all? throughout uh 
your your tours? Probably passed away, Mitch Hedberg, when I was. I mean, I'm 26, so he probably died a decade ago. I started when I was 19, so like there, there's a lot of guys I you know I didn't really have the chance. Like my favorite comics are pretty much all dead. I mean, I that that joke about getting a receipt for his like dollar fifty donut, like five like file it under d like <laughs> his he's a genius i mean there's if someone is to watch my act it's hard not to realize that hedberg is a pretty big inspiration for a lot of jokes there are some jokes that i'll write where in my head i'm like i think mitch would have liked that like i had this one joke when i was younger where i would say uh, the exterminator came to my apartment today and he told me to call him if the ants come back. I was like, wouldn't I just call a different exterminator? And that's a very Hedberg thought where it's like, here's this situation that presents itself. And here's the logical explanation. And he was this guy who was, he just made stand up silly. There was no transitions. There was no, here's this topic flowing into this topic. It was, here's what I think is funny. And I'm going to throw it out there. Sure. A lot of his style was because he was high on heroin all of the time. That's pretty much why he was like that on stage. But there was such a simplicity to just being funny in the moment. Like some of his jokes, like uh, my friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana and I was like, no, but I might want a regular banana later. And like for those, like it's, I get why some people think he's stupid. Like my girlfriend, who's also a stand-up comedian, hates Hedberg, which is, should, should be a huge red flag for me. I'm going to have to edit that part out of this interview. To me, he's my favorite. Him and Greg Giraldo... Uh, was my favorite, and then there's a guy on my left. There's Mitch Hedberg actually right there to my left. You can see in the screen. Yeah, it's a painting of Hedberg, and then I just, I mean, Carlin. He's he's a genius, I and mean, hands down, like just I cannot think of a situation that I would need to prove that I purchased this donut or what. I mean, geez, like it's so logical, and no one has ever like explored the topics that he covered and they're simple. A lot are like you said, like almost borderline stupid, but there's, they're hilarious. They're hilarious because they're all thoughts people have had, but they've never vocalized. He was really able to get into the psyche of that, that weird anxious voice or that voice that pops in and saying, why the hell do they give me a receipt for this donut? Everyone has that voice. Not everyone knows how to vocalize it. He was the king of showing you a joke that was right in front of your eyes. And then, I mean, him and then Greg Giraldo was a huge influence for me. But, like, I remember being a, an athlete, right? All my friends would listen to, to music before big games. They'd listen to rap, they rock, they'd pop, pop themselves up. I remember even in college, man, that first game, being in South, South Carolina, warming up before the game, I'm jogging, listening to Hedberg, Carlin, uh, Bill Hicks. I mean, I was obsessed with stand-up before I was even a stand-up. So what, what's your favorite movie? Do you, do you like serious movies or, and I also, I, I just have to ask if you like, um, Sandler, uh, cause his, his humor is almost, it's, it's, uh, it's unique. Um, I, I, I love it. My wife can't stand Sandler. <laughs> but that's any performer. I mean, I think any good artist who, who explores, this this life of where they create so much where sandler has created so many movies so many characters so many jokes obviously a lot of it's going to be trash but there's going to be so much good of it he's got some great movies 
you could even, I'll still laugh at grown-ups, man. Grown-ups one, grown-ups two. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say like he's one of my guys. He's not on my Mount Rushmore by any means. There's guys who, you know, people probably who have never heard of that I, I would say are far more influential in my career. But I definitely respect his body of work. I mean, it comes to a thing where like so many comics are judgy. They, they, you know, we hate ventriloquists. We hate prop comics. We hate high energy comedians, this and that. We don't like this joke. This person's a hack. But to me, I mean, I was like that at points, but I'm at a point now where I think ultra running ties into that, where when you put yourself into these situations, you're not, I'm not judging these comics. I mean, I feel like I've put myself through harder stuff outside of comedy now that I don't care about this comedy stuff anymore. I'm just actually having fun with it now. And if people are getting laughs, then so be it. They're funny to that group of people. And that is all that matters. Last time I was playing baseball, I was so little. I was listening to the Adam Sandler CD. I think it was a CD. Um, I think it was like piece of shit car, you know, you know, all those albums. I love comedy albums. Comedy albums was something I used to steal from my parents and, and play them. And that's how I learned what stand-up comedy was. But I also had a father who loved Howard Stern. So comedy was always pretty present. You know, Artie Lang was always a pretty big voice of my childhood. And he went on to become someone who I've hung out with many times. And that's the interesting thing is like when you grow up a comedy fan, it's pretty realistic that if you put in the work and, and go into this business, you're going to work with a lot of these people. So like so many of my childhood idols I've been able to work with and, and meet and just learn from. And that's kind of how I feel like I've been able to grow so much. And ultra running is kind of that same way, right? Where like what other sport exists where if you're a football player and you want to play football, there's no, there's no league out there that exists where you're going to line up with these other NFL football players, whereas if you run these ultras, I mean, you're going to be at the starting line with your Courtney's and, and all these runners. You know, you're going to have these people in the front. You're going to see Killian up there and you're going to be like, wow, this is insane. I'm running the same races as these people. You get to do the same course and a lot of times they will be at the finish line having a beer with everyone, which is unheard of. Um, they're very accessible. Courtney goes into uh, Hard Rock and, and she has to pull at what, 68 miles. And that's that's one of the greatest in the sport. That's like, you'll watch Chris Rock go up at the cellar, work his new material. Some nights he'll bomb. I've seen him. He's, you know, there are stories of him getting booed on new material, you know, in past years. So it's like, it, it's that humbling thing where ultra running and comedy, it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, you still need to show up that day of, and if things don't go right, they won't go right. There's no... You know, the best of the best could still fall. And I think being around a business and an act, a hobby now and an activity like ultra running that, that are both so equally humbling is so helpful. That is an awesome, awesome point. I mean, would you say comedy taught you to lose the fear of failure? And so that has now been leveraged into ultra running or is ultra running helping you lose the fear of failure and you're leveraging that into your career now. Comedy taught it because I mean, I was an only child and I was an only child who was good at a sport. So there was a lot of things given to me early in my life or just people not really saying no a lot, I, I guess would be the thing. I mean, I had hardships here and there and whatnot, but comedy was the first time in my life where like, not only are you getting told no, but you're a teenager having 40 year olds tell you, no, you're not funny, this and that, blah, blah, blah. So like rejection comes into your life and like not only 
like regular like rejection where you really put in the work you showed up you had this audition you crushed and then you still don't get the thing you're auditioning for you don't get the tv set you don't get the tonight show even though you showed up and did well and like that is so informative that hey sometimes it just doesn't go your way and you're gonna need to be okay with that because you can't control it there are some things where no matter how good you do in this business you still might get that no and that was something i didn't know until being in 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 comedy i mean comedy really humbled me in such a way and then the weight gain weight loss and ultra running just contribute to that and they they ultimately form this person of who I am now and uh, on a path that I really love. I mean, I've never been more excited to be alive. I think that's, if I could stress anything to people who might, I mean, I I assume people listening to an ultra running podcast, probably not many fat people listening to this, but the things in my life that corrected when I lost the weight, like happiness that I didn't know was attainable, that like when you correct this thing, other things that have no connection to your weight might also start to go right. Your relationships, your friendships, your business. I mean, all these things might start to come together because you're starting to put the work in the right direction. And work in the right direction ultimately moves your life in the right direction. That's what I started to learn was just moving things in the right direction ultimately put everything in a better spot. Me. We, we're we very similar. It's kind of crazy, honestly. I In my book, I describe it as like life balancing out. Like things just start to balance that we're out of whack. And I I like the way you described it. Um, so I got one or two more questions and I really want to stay in touch with you. Hopefully we get to share some miles at some point. Absolutely. You're in Colorado, right? Yes. In Denver, anytime you're here, let me know. We'll hit my local trails. I'll do whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I only expect a very good stand-up show. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm supposed to do shows in Denver actually sooner than later, so I'm pretty excited. I hope it's at a point. I, I have not been on a trail in months. I'm running again. I've been running for uh, probably six weeks now. But my ankle is still so unstable that I'm scared to put myself on a trail. I'm up to like 30, 40 mile weeks again, 10 and a half miles of the long distances. I actually, yesterday and today, two back-to-back 10-mile runs and the foot held up. But uh, I just have that feeling that if I was to go on a trail tomorrow, it, I, it would snap again. You, you'd be shocked at the trails. I, I'm like a very risk-adverse uh, trainer. and I'm a big believer in... If you don't get injured, you keep accumulating gains as opposed to like riskier training where you blow something out, you set yourself back a year, then it takes a year to get back. You know, like um, I'm a big, big like risk adverse, like I'd rather run very smooth, non-technical trails that are just beautiful and I spend equal amount of time pausing taking photos, having fun as, you know, having painful workouts. Yeah, I probably should do that because my, uh, you know, injuries start to build up and then I'm in this position where my, my arch might be collapsing on my right foot. So it's like just trying to run with dealing with that. And yeah, you'll figure it out. And again, it's just, just consistency. You just keep, keep building it. And I also come from that Goggin school of thought, which is where I'm 26. I could blow this out still. I could run. I, I could keep running this till the wheels fall off, and that might be what I need. His his whole thing on like stretching for like 
some obscene amount of time, like unlocked his hip flexors or something. It was just like, okay, maybe for Navy SEAL, but uh, this guy can't stretch for more than 15 minutes without like over flexing everything. Uh. <laughs> like tonight, like I have my notepad next to my accountability notepad. I'm like, there's 60 minutes of stretching scheduled. Oh man. At least an hour a day, sometimes two hours. A lot of that stuff is like a balance between the tension in your muscles. Like I have deep hip flexor issues. So you do. Yes. Like I have a pretty good eye of like being in tune with my body. So I notice all these injuries starting when I have two straight pointing feet. Next thing you know, my foot started to go to the right, cock out to the right. Once that happened, all these injuries started post-tib tendonitis, and that led to a completely torn ATFL in the ligament, heel bursitis, now the collapsing arch. But the more I get my hips in line, the more I stretch those out and, and work the lower back, the more that foot goes back to the left. And when I get that foot back to being straight, that's when my body is at its healthiest. So that's when I know, like, when the stretching is complete. But right now, it's so far cut. Foam rollers on the hip, or the IT bands, really, and the quads, glutes, everything. It really helps me. I'm a big foam roller guy. And I've I've run, I, I ran Moab 240 the first 10 miles with David Goggins. And um, he's, he's legit. He is his own guy. Um, he's not really there's a lot of talk like is he just acting or whatever like he's just a different breed of human and i've never seen someone with his physique like it almost doesn't make sense how his upper body is in proportion with everything else it's just like it's absolutely nuts he's he's uh one of a kind and i he's a lot nicer person uh, when you when you talk to him, then most people probably think. But I'm fascinated by him because I don't even think he realizes it. I consider him in this realm where through physical activity, spiritually, I'm sure he's not there, but he is an enlightened individual. The way he speaks, the way he talks. I mean, there's no difference between like a guy like Ram Dass and a guy like David Goggins. They've both found very similar conclusions on very different paths. But through pain, I mean, even a guy like Ram Dass has a quote that, you know, pain is the sandpaper that awakens the mind. I mean, so like Goggins is one of the, I mean, he's, his story is just one of those things where I'm like, I get why people are rubbed the wrong way by some of his verbiage and, and the things he says. And, but I'm like, at the core of it, there is a message there that if you do want to become this, as he says, you just got to become a sadistic motherfucker. You know, that's it. You just got to become crazy. Something snaps. The the light switch goes off. He has a very. He definitely has a system, and he has like a systematic approach to any kind of question that I asked him during the run. But most importantly, he is hilarious. So um, he has a good sense of humor. I know you have a good sense of humor. I was going to finish with one last question. What's the best advice you've ever picked up from any? comedian over the years and then what advice do you have for that overweight gentleman female that is is not taking that first step that thinks they're capable but hasn't made the first move so best comedic advice of all times it could be from the most famous 
the most unknown whoever and then um advice for for someone that's bigger that wants to pursue ultra running i mean i I do genuinely think the best comedy advice i ever got was when i was 19 and someone said don't take anyone's advice in comedy because it's such a unique business that your path will not be the same as anyone else's and i took that to heart because in comedy they tell you you need to do you know four open mics a night in new york city to make it i did one open mic in new york city when i was brand new and then i never did another one because i i had this deep I had this deep feeling that my path was going to be the path I created for myself. And that advice was kind of just solidified that, that you, you have to set off on your own path. And I think that kind of transitions into the weight loss stuff too, which is I was that guy who was so fat and out of shape and a lost cause that I had, you know, mom and dad, grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles, telling me I needed to make changes. I had friends. I wouldn't even call them friends. I had acquaintances in comedy who were pulling me aside and saying, dude, you're one of the people we think could make it. Why are you doing this? It was a running joke that I was going to be, you know, the most famous 30 under 30 to die by 30 or something like that. It was a running joke that I was going to be dead by 30 amongst comics. It was something I was used to hearing. And I just, I had to take it to the point where I knew I was done. And I think, I think there's, Life gives you a lot of signs when you're at that heaviest point that you're done and you need to make a change. And the reason it gives you so many is because we ignore them. We sometimes see them, but then we ignore them and we see it and we ignore it. And it shows you so many because it is the time to change. And I think if you could just make yourself a little bit aware to see those signs, then to just run with it. And because why not? I mean, what at the end of the day, I mean, this is all we have is this body. So why not try to make it a little bit better? But then like so many people ask me for the advice on the weight loss. And I'm just like, you got to run your shit into the ground. I mean, if you really don't feel like making a change, you're not going to make a change until that light switch gets turned on. And then you put a piece of duct tape over that light switch and keep it on. You're going to keep flickering it. You just, there's got to be something has to snap in you to make that light switch stay on. And it's like, I wish I could tell people what it was that that got me there. I know what got me there. I know the things I wanted to do, that I wanted to be better, that I I genuinely had to look in the mirror and be disgusted with myself. And and it got to the point of accountability where I was like, man, I the way I the way I said it and the way I tell people is I, I saw my body like a spill, right? If if you have a home and you live in that home and you spill something on the floor of your kitchen, and you leave it there, that spill is going to stay there until the day you decide to clean it up. And my body was that. I had a very large spill, you know, an extra 180 pounds of a spill. And whether I blame myself for that weight being there, or whether I blame life or comedy or losing baseball, I was the only one capable of cleaning up that spill because I was the owner of that house. I was the only one in the house. I needed to clean that spill up unless the store wasn't going to function properly. So once I cleaned that spill up, holy shit, look what's in aisle seven. Look what's in aisle six. I haven't even seen those aisles because I was so busy looking at the spill in aisle one that now there's 13 other aisles in my life to explore. And each aisle has fruits and that I've never once knew were going to be there. And I think that's what it is. It's just try to clean up that spill, whether it's a little bit at a time or you decide, fuck it, I'm going to be an ultra runner. Who cares? Just make this step to mop up that spill and slowly soak it up. And I think that's 
the most you could do. That's beautiful. I think it's a great way to end this. Dan, you better stay in touch. Um, I definitely, what's your upcoming 50 miler that you're training for? My first race was a 42 miler with 5,000 feet elevation. I think it ended up 41 miles. And this one is a 55 miler called, this is the longer version of that first race I was supposed to do, the Batona trail race. They have a 33 and a 55. They're letting me do the 55 since I've now run uh, a 40 miler. So, but it's pancake flat. So in my head, it took me nine hours to do the 40 miles with 5,000 feet. I want to do 55 miles pancake flat in nine hours as well. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'm going to try. I mean, you'll amaze yourself when you, you start believing you can do stuff and running and you're doing it consistently. Uh, you know, because all of my training the past few weeks has been flat trails or just street running. And I'm just going to be smart with that. And I'm actually running. This is the first time ever I'm going to run with someone. I have a, a new buddy I met online that he's going to come out to the race. We're going to run it together. And it, I do want to get to the 100 miler sooner than later. So I'm like, well, 50 is the next progression. Let's go 40 to 50. And then yeah. we'll talk after that. Well, again, anytime you're in Denver, just reach out. And um, you, you'll always have someone to run here with. So anytime so i don't want to get attacked by uh, you know i hear a lot of people get bitten out there so you're, you're my line of defense <laughs> you just you always have to run with someone just a little bit slower than you and then you're protected from all well then in that case i'm probably going to be your line of defense so. i am i'm really out of shape after covid um running leadville though yeah yeah i'm, I'm running let's see it's tuesday i'm running that on saturday so that's 100 miles yeah. Yeah. It's a hundred, I think a hundred point four or something. That's definitely on my short list of, uh, dream races, Leadville, Western it's, States. It's been a, a dream race since I started. I mean, I can remember I bought a, a hundred mile Leadville shirt, had it shipped to me in Ohio and I used to train in it dreaming of doing this race. So it's a little mind blowing that it's coming up here. Well, best of luck with that. That's amazing that it's uh, come to fruition. It's when you set your mind to stuff, it, it seems to always happen. As Amelia Boone says, uh, race is the uh, celebration of the work that we've put in. So it's time to celebrate, right? It's exactly right. Where Dan, where can we follow you on social? Where can we purchase your, your album? You, you do have an uh, album, right? Yeah, I have two albums, one called Not Enough Pieces that I recorded when I was 20. I don't recommend listening to it. Uh, it's actually a pretty good out. Like, laughter is there, but I was such a new comic that it's very vulgar. And But it, I guess it's a good look into the mind of a young comic. And then I have Infect Me Once, which came out a few years after that, those two albums. Uh, and then I'm just danlamort.com or at danlamort on Twitter or Instagram, D-A-N-L-A-M-O-R-T-E. That's about it. I got my company, the High Miles Company. Active wear for the athletic stoner. So that's what we do. I I really appreciate your time. And, and like I said, stay in touch. And I can't wait to hear more about your 55 miler. So have, yeah, have a great night. And thank you so much. Thank you. This was a great time. I'm a happy guy. Although I recently went through like my first real and do breakup. Don't worry. It was a mutual decision between her and her friends. And <laughs> Now it's episode 179. Big thank you to Dan for taking so much of his time. 
Really appreciate all the support. You Patreon supporters, you're amazing. I love the closed Facebook group conversations. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Like it. Five-star reviews are awesome. Share it with some of your friends. Just much appreciated. Big thank you to the show sponsors, Exoskin, Tannery Outdoors, and the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, their Grit Series. If you haven't checked out that upcoming Flagstaff Half Marathon, definitely check that out. It's coming up pretty quick, September 4th. But I just, I'm really thankful between doing the Kipchoge episode and just hearing the entire world explode with that uh, that one comment he made and then getting to talk to just really cool people like Dan Lamort. I'm very grateful and, and thank you guys for listening. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there these days and I just really am thankful and appreciative of you guys. So hopefully I'm adding value to your listening time there. Most importantly, don't forget to enjoy your training. See ya.